Last week we, we spoke about the three major things that the Prophet did when he first entered Medina. We talked about the construction of the mosque, we talked about the Brotherhood program, and we talked about the constitution of Medina. And of course those things didn't happen overnight, they took some time, but I, I like to discuss them separately out of the chronology because those issues uh, are very important for us to understand what's going to happen for the rest, rest of the seerah. The basic, the pillar, the basic foundation of the constitution of Medina was to create a community. Using today's language, we would, we would see in that the creation of citizenship, a sense of belonging, that now we are a community in this place called Al-Medina. And remember, we talked about the borders being defined, freedom of movement, etc. And that means we have a special relationship that is broader than our faith relationship. So we can have a relationship because we have the same faith, but we can also have a relationship because we come from the same location, the same village, the same tribe, or today we say the same country, the same nation, etc. And those uh, relationships are broader sometimes than the relationship of faith, usually. Except in rare circumstances in which some countries are almost you know, 100% the same faith. But that's, that's very rare. So that was the basic idea, is that the Prophet ﷺ was trying to create a new community. A community that was free to practice its faith, a community that was plural, had multiple religions, a community that worked together, that defended itself, that, you know, that thrived, etc. That was the vision, that that's what the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina to establish. So it's always important that we remember that, that that's what the Prophet ﷺ wanted. And he, he was patient for those 13 years in Mecca uh, until the time was right and Allah gave him the permission to migrate to Medina to establish this. Now, of course, the constitution of Medina later in the Sira is violated by some of the Jewish tribes. And therefore, the underlying uh, premise of the state of Medina was threatened. And we'll get to that inshallah. But it's very important that we remember that we keep that in our minds to understand what we're, what we're talking about. Now, one of the people that we mentioned in passing the last couple times was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salum, who was a Medanese uh, Arab who was going to be crowned the king of Yathrib right before the hijrah of the Prophet And he is remembered uh, in the seerah as the head of the Munafiqun. So the, the, the Munafiqs is now a new group that emerges in Medina. And they are people, the hypocrites, are the people that would claim that they're Muslim, but privately they don't, they don't, they're not Muslim. They don't believe. And privately even, they colluded with the enemy, with the Quraysh, 
and with some of the Jewish tribes uh, that we'll come to later to dissolve the fabric of the state of Medina. So Abdullah ibn Ubayyah ibn Salul, the minute that the Prophet enters Medina, here we're talking about the very Rabi'al Awad of the first year of the Hijrah. This is the month in which the Prophet enters Medina. Right away, Abdullah ibn Ubayyah ibn Salul, in that very month, he started receiving messages from Quraysh. Because remember, the Prophet entered in Medina in the early part of the month on the 8th or the 9th of Rabi' al-Awwal, which is his birthday. So he enters Medina on his birthday, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Later, by the end of that month, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul is now getting messages from the Quraysh, and he's working with them to kill the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So keep in mind that what the Prophet, sallallahu wanted to achieve, and here we're talking about not one month has passed, and already there is this threat. By the following month, Rabi'al Akhar, and here from now on, I'll try my best to go month by month, you know, year in a chronology. Sometimes we might not be able to, but it's it, it, it's nice to try to keep the chronology. At least that's how I would like to do it. So by the second month, Rabi'al Akhar, that the Prophet mm -hmm. was in Medina, uh, Abdullah bin Ubayy bin Salul, he goes, actually, physically goes to try to kill the Prophet but when he goes and he sees him surrounded by the Sahaba, he realizes, you know, this is not going to happen. And this is where his reputation as, the, as a hypocrite emerges. So he tries to act like he's with the Prophet but the whole time he, he doesn't want to believe because the Prophet foiled this aspiration that he had to become the king of Medina. So from the very beginning, within one month of the Prophet being in Medina, there was already problems. There was problems with Abdullah bin Ubayyah bin Salul colluding with the Quraysh. And then shortly thereafter that, uh, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, one of, one of the famous companions, returned to Mecca because he had trade with some of the people of Quraysh. And as he entered Mecca, he went to go make the tawaf because when you enter Mecca, that is the, the uh, the etiquette, the sunnah of entering Mecca is you greet Mecca by making tawaf. When you walk into a mosque, you pray two rakahs. That's the greeting of the mosque. The greeting of the haram in Mecca is to make the tawaf, even if you're not performing umrah or hajj or anything like that. So if you go to Mecca, the first thing you do is you go to the haram and you make your tawaf. So Sa'ad ibn Abu Waqas, he goes to do that, and then Abu Jahl stops him, prevents him from making the tawaf, which is really you know, unheard of, because even the Jahili Arabs would make tawaf. We talked about this in the very beginning of the Sira, that they they have their, they kept remnants of the pilgrimage that was taught to them by Ismail and Ibrahim So the fact that somebody would come to a holy place uh, and, and greet the, the mosque or greet the haram, greet the Kaaba by making tawaf, the fact that somebody would be prevented from doing that, that's a big, that's a big thing. That's a, that's a, a big offense. So Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas he tells Abu Jah, he says to him, how would you like it if I prevented you from your trade? Because Yathrib, Medina, is between Mecca and between Sham, between the Mecca and the Levant. 
And this is the, the trail, the, the, the highway, if you will, between Mecca and the north, passes through Yathrib, passes through Medina. So Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, he alludes, and he almost gives a foreshadow to Abu Jahl, that if you are going to prevent us from tawaf, then we will prevent you from trade, which would be absolutely disastrous, because Mecca, you know, is th it thrives on this trade. There's no natural resources or anything like that. I mean, yeah, there's zamzam, there's water, and then there's the pilgrimage people come, but they also need to trade. Rahnatu shitaat wa Allah says in the Quran, the, the, the travel between winter and the summer. So this is really where the tension begins from the very beginning. So Salim Ali Al-Qasim, he returns to Medina, he tells the Prophet And things are so tense that the Prophet he says, I wish somebody from my companions would guard my house at night. So Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, he takes it upon himself and he puts on his armor and he stands guard outside the door of the Prophet all night, every night, day in and day out. And here we're talking about the first 30, 60 days of the Prophet arriving in Medina. So this, you know, fleeing from the persecution of Quraysh, fleeing from Mecca, coming to Medina, having peace, all of this never really happened the way that the Prophet wanted to because these problems came to him. So the Prophet's house had to be guarded. There had to be a night watch every night until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse, Allah will protect you from the people, at which point the Prophet relieved Sa'ad and anybody else that was guarding him and said, oh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised me through revelation, he will guard you so there's no need to be guarded. And after this, the Prophet was in, didn't have any bodyguards or anything like that because Allah said, we will take care of this for you. But the point was, is that these problems quickly came to Medina. In this early time, in this early period, this is when permission was given for the Prophet and the Sahaba to fight, to defend themselves. After 14 years of Islam, 14 or 15 years of Islam, all of this nonsense that the Prophet had to put up with, only then was permission given for the Prophet to fight. So this, we want to just pause on this a little bit because of the significance. There are two verses that the, uh, that the ulama remind us are the verses that were revealed at this time in the seerah, in the first year of the seerah, first, second year of the seerah, to give this permission. The first verse is verse 39 from Surah Al-Hajj. أُذِنَ لِلَّذِينَ يُقَاتِلُونَ بِأَنَّهُمْ ظُلِمُوا وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى نَصْرِهِمْ Permission has been given to fight because you are unjustly treated. So in this verse, and, and indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over their victory is able. So Allah here is telling us in this verse, verse again, verse 39 of Surah Al-Hajj, that fighting, here Allah uses the word qital, you know, fighting, here we're talking about military fighting, not spiritual jihad or jihad al-akbar as, as we refer to here, Allah is very clear, permission has been given you to fight because you have been treated unjustly. So from the very initial revelation, dealing with 
small jihad, jihad here meaning warfare, the idea is that this jihad has been legislated as a defensive measure. The second verse, verse 190 of Surah Al-Baqarah, Again, Qital, Allah is very explicit when he's not talking about spiritual jihad, he's talking about fight, military fighting, military combat. Fighting has been, uh, fight in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, those who fight you. And do not transgress because Allah does not like the transgressor. So here again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very explicitly. This doesn't, you don't need to be the, the world's biggest mujtahid to understand this verse. I mean, even from the English uh, translation of the verse, we understand Allah saying, fight in the way of Allah those who fight you. So can you fight those who don't fight you? No, you can't. Is Allah saying fight uh, abstractly forever because you have to spread Islam by the sword? No, that's not what Allah says. Allah says fight those who fight you. Very specific. So keep this in mind. So whenever you hear people say Islam was spread by the sword, Islam, uh, the Prophet was, was a warmonger, all of this nonsense. Remember these verses. Remember how the jihad with a small j, how qital, how fighting, how military uh, combat was legislated in Islam. The Prophet did not even last 60 days in Medina. 60 days, and there was already assassination attempt, there was already collusion with Quraysh, they were already prevented from making tawaf. I mean, they just left Mecca, and these are Meccans. It's not like they're the, the Aus and the Khazraj. I mean, we're talking about people that are from Mecca, like the Prophet, and he's from Mecca. Not just from Mecca, he's from Ben Hashim. They're the ones that are taking care of the Kiswa and the, and the Zamzam and, and the pilgrims and all of the Rifada, all of these things for the pilgrims. So the fact that they're prevented from making Tawaf, in our language today, this is a declaration of war. Because no, it's like uh, somebody going to a town and there's a famous monument or there's a famous historic museum and you're, you're not allowed to. But everyone does that. Everyone goes to this area and, and visits. So that was like a declaration of war. So as the verses unravel, or rather, as the verses are revealed for the Qital, keep in mind that this is from the point of view of a defense of the security of Islam. And remains so. Our understanding of warfare and uh, you know we, we can talk about some of the rules as as they come uh, as they come, but the main understanding of jihad with a smaller case J in the Sharia is that it has to be something that comes from a state. The the word that the Prophet uses in the Hadith that the jihad can only happen under tahtiraya, underneath the auspices of a banner, meaning underneath. The auspices, or within the uh, within the uh, control of some kind of constituted political unit, not underneath a blind a blind banner. So it's something that has to be agreed by the community. And remember, what did the Prophet write in the Constitution of Medina? Is that he, all of the tribes agreed that if one of them was attacked, all of them would come to the defense of, of the other. 
to defend the borders, to defend their freedom of movement, to, to defend their trade, to defend their life, to defend their home, which is what war and, and uh, warfare is, is essentially, to defend these freedoms. So this, I, I, I just spent a little bit of extra time on this because everything we're going to talk about, usually in the seerah, starting from the hijrah to the end of the Prophet's life, we talk about all of the military excursions that take place. Because these were, uh, you know, monumental events. Just like now, we celebrate, you know, Veterans Day or we celebrate the 4th of July, Independence Day, because this is not normal. We don't normally go to war. So when there's a war and there's a victory and it has some kind of meaning in our national identity, we celebrate and we commemorate and honor it. So that's why the seerah, uh, the early works in the seerah, they were called maghazi. They were just books that talked about the narration of all of the military excursions. This is why, because it was, it was abnormal that there would be all of this fighting. But sometimes when we do that, we don't remember or we don't connect the dots of how all of this happened. And that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time this evening to discuss that, because it's important that we remember what was happening for all of these verses to be revealed to make sense. Okay, so there are all these threats within the first two months of the Prophet arriving. We have the problem now with this guy, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul, the head of the Munafiqun. And now the Prophet his, his strategic mind starts to kick in. So the first thing that he did is he built this state. Now we have the borders of Medina and all of the tribes that are involved in the state of Medina. Okay, he, he, he checked that box. He made this program between the between the uh, Muhajirun and the Ansar, he checked that box. But now he's starting to think beyond. He's starting to think beyond the borders of Medina. So the Prophet sought to extend the radius of safe space around Medina by making alliances with other tribes. So in the first year of the Hijrah, this is what the Prophet was doing. He was trying to find those tribes outside of the state of Medina. So they, they fall outside of the borders, but they are either between Medina and Mecca, or they are north, so that he can create more of a space between him and the Levant to exert a type of soft power against Mecca to show them that now he controls this space. You know that expression, the best the best defense is, what is, is a strong offense. Or the best, what is it? Yeah, the best defense is a strong offense. So here the Prophet is taking a little bit of an offensive posture, but by uh, creating these alliances. And in the alliances, the Prophet is offering these tribes either uh, you make peace with us, or at least you promise that we won't fight each other. So it's not like the alliances with the Jewish tribes of Medina that created the state of Medina. At least if he could neutralize the, that tribe and there's peace between them, then he'll know that he doesn't have to worry about them. So all of these early excursions, and here today's class is essentially all of the, the major issues that happened between the arrival of the Prophet and the Battle of Badr, which we'll talk about next week inshallah. So I'm this is to fill in this information. So the first excursion that was sent out in Islam was in Ramadan of the first year of the Hijrah. So here the Prophet arrived in Rabi' al-Awwal. 
ربيع الاخر جماد الاول جماد الاخر رجب شعبان right so about six months give or take after the prophet's arrival in medina in ramadan of the first year of the hijrah they went out uh, on the first military ex excursion called Sif al-Bahr Sif al-Bahr and the military all of the excursions will have a military will usually know how many people were in the in the excursion will usually know who had the flag who held the flag of the excursion remember the prophet said that jihad can only be carried out underneath a banner so the flag somebody carrying the flag means that this is like you know this is like the military uniform this is the unit that's that's coming out from the state of medina and if the prophet himself went out we will also know who was left behind to be in charge of medina because there has to be continue a continuity of leadership of, of, of political leadership so Sif al-Bah, Ramadan of the first year of the Hijrah, the first military excursion in Islam was headed by Hamza ibn Abi Talib anhu, and with him, with him were 30 men. And this was the first flag in Islam, and the flag was white. So ISIS, they didn't get that memo. They get the colors of it. Anyway, no fighting occurred, alhamdulillah, uh, in that. Shawad of the first year of the Hijrah, Rabiq. This was had by Ubaidah ibn al-Harith who had 60 men. And there were some light skirmishes with Abu Sufyan. So throughout this time, when we talk about these military excursions and excursions uh, or, or units that were sent out to make these alliances with the tribes, they're always going to bump up with Abu Sufyan and the caravans that were traveling you know, on this trade route between Mecca uh, and Sham. Dhul-Qa'da of the first year of the Hijrah. This was Al-Kharar, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas with 20 men. So look, basically one, one a month. Once every month there's like some kind of effort to go out, make peace with these tribes, to try to uh, demonstrate to the Qurayshis that we're not going, we're not, you know, we're active, we're creating alliances, etc. This concludes the first year, and then Muharram of the second year of the Hijrah, we take a pause from the military excursions, because I'm trying to go in a chronological order, and this is when the fast of Ashura is established. So remember the Prophet Sassam, he arrives in Mecca of Rabia al-Awwal of, of the first year, so he missed Muharram. So this is the first Muharram that the Prophet Sassam is in Medina. And it was at this time on the 10th of Muharram, the Prophet observed that the Jews were fasting this day. And he asked the Jews, or he asked his you know, companions of the, of the people of Medina, why are, why are the Jews fasting? And the Jews said, this is the day in which God has freed Moses from Pharaoh. Moses and Bani Israel from, from Pharaoh. So the Prophet said, I have more of a right than you to Moses because I am a prophet and he is my brother and prophet. So the Prophet ordered the companions to fast the day of Ashura. And then the fast of Ashura became a sunnah with the legislation of the fast of Ramadan became obligatory later that year. So Ashura, the 10th of Muharram, is one of our days of fast. Sunnah fast nonetheless. And it's important that we remember some significant aspects of why this is important. Number one, the Prophet ﷺ, he tried to find 
aspects of similarity between Islam and other religions. So this was essentially, you can almost say, a non-Muslim religious event that the Prophet linked back to Islam. Now, of course, he can do that because he's the Prophet, he's the legislator. I understand that, but I'm just saying we should also understand that. And he said, we have more of a claim to Moses. Moses is also our Prophet. So we fast also out of thanksgiving that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved Musa salam, saved Harun salam, saved Bani Israel from Pharaoh. So we honor that day. So when people come and you know they talk about Christmas and they talk about all of these things and how everything is haram and everything is bid'ah and everyone's going to the hellfire, this is not the way of the Prophet The way of the Prophet is to find points of similarity. I'm not saying that we have to fast Christmas or anything like that. I'm just saying that the attitude that the Prophet had was Jesus belongs to us, alayhi salam. Mary belongs to us, alayhi salam. That was the attitude that the Prophet had. Also about Ashura, the Prophet he said that I believe that the fast of Ashura forgives the previous year of sins. So this is also a benefit for the fasting of Ashura. And this hadith that I just said now, this hadith, we narrate on the day of Ashura. And in the chain of transmission between you and the Prophet you say, I heard from my Shaykh on the day of Ashura. He heard from his Shaykh on the day of Ashura, etc. That the Prophet said, Something like that with the wording. The exact wording escapes me right now. The Prophet also said about Ashura, Man Whoever expands on himself on the day of Ashura, on him and his family, Allah will expand on them the rest of the year. So expanding, a tawassal, on the day of Ashura is also a sunnah. And this sunnah is achieved by doing something extra for yourself and your family. Mm. Traditionally, Muslims would cook or make a type of dessert that would usually be called Ashura on the day of Ashura because of this hadith. And the Prophet said, if you do something extra for yourself and your family on this day, you will find expansion for the rest of the year. And the Sahaba that narrated this hadith, and this hadith is, is Sahih, based on the conditions of Sahih Muslim, it's Sahih. The Sahaba that narrated this hadith, they said, we tried it and we found it to be true for 60 years, 40 years, whatever narration. Meaning that every year they did, they did that, and then one year they didn't do that, and they realized that that year they didn't have a good year the way that the other years were. And they reflected that back or attributed that back to the expansion on the day of Ashura. So Ashura is a day of fast. Uh, it's a day of expansion. It's a day of uh, solemn commemoration for the the uh, freedom that Musa and Bani Israel experienced. It's also other hadith, the day that Nuh found land after the flood, etc. And after the passing of the Prophet there's also another meaning of Ashura because this is also the day in which Imam Hussein was, was, uh, was killed in the battle of Karbala which is outside of our uh, domain. But because of this reason, it's also an important days for our brothers, the Shia. And therefore, our expansion on the day of Ashura 
some people falsely think is uh, in support of, of Yazid, uh, which nothing could be further than the, than the truth. And we, uh, Imam al Hussein is also our Imam, alayhi salam. He was the grandson of the Prophet. And the Prophet said, Anam in Hussein, wa Hussein minni. I am from Hussein, and Hussein is from me, alayhi salam. So this took place in Muharram of the second year of the Hijrah. Safar of the second year, which is the second month. This is the excursion of an abwa' and this is the excursion in which the Prophet ﷺ went himself with 70 men. And an abwa' is where the Prophet Sallallahu mother is, ﷺ is buried. And in this uh, excursion, this resulted, this took about 15 days, about two weeks, and this resulted in, in a major treaty with the tribe of Beni Damira. Uh, so this was a major alliance that the Prophet ﷺ was able to make. He went out himself. Rabi al-Awwal of the second year of the Hijrah, one of the people from Quraysh who later becomes Muslim, but at this point he's not, Karz, Ibn Jabir al-Bihri, he attacked Medina and stole some of the Prophet ﷺ's livestock. So just in one whole year, not only were there threats, but now there's an actual attack on Medina. I mean, it's a small attack, it's like a skirmish, but it's an attack nonetheless. In the following month, Rabi'al, uh, in the same month, Rabi'al Awwal, the Prophet also went out again with 200 people, Al-Bawat. And then also under Rabi'al Awwal, there was an excursion to Safwan. The Prophet went out with 70 people, and this in the uh, Sirah literature is also known as Badr 1, or like the first. Better episode because this took place near the area of Badr. In Jumad al-Awwal of the second year of the Hijrah, there is the excursion of Dhul Ashira. The Prophet went out with 50 people himself and he made peace with Banu Madlaj, uh, another alliance, and they were also in, uh, in peace already with the previous tribe that the Prophet had made peace with, so it was easier for them to make alliance. So here the Prophet is spreading now his sphere of political influence. In Rajab of the second year of the Hijrah, this was the excursion of Nahla. The Prophet sent Abdullah ibn Jahsh out with 12 men and he gave him a letter and he said, ride for two days and don't open the letter until two days have passed. After two days, he opened the letter. The Prophet had written to him and he said to go to this area called Nahla, which is near Mecca, towards Mecca, and just observe, don't do anything else. At this time, Abdullah ibn Jahsh and the people that were with him, when they went to Nakhla, they saw this caravan of Quraysh. And keep in mind that this is during the month of Rajab. And Rajab is one of the sacred months, the month that we're in now. It's the Haram month. What does it mean that it's Min al-Ashwar al-Hurum, the sacred months, meaning that you can't fight in the Jahiliyyah and also in Islam? So these are months in which it is prohibited to fight militarily, except if there is self-defense, except if somebody attacks you. So Abdullah bin Jahsh, he just saw this was like too good. So he actually attacked. Some of the people of Quraysh were killed, some of them were taken prisoners, and they took the rest of the stuff as booty. And they returned to, the, to Medina. Obviously the Prophet was upset with this because this violates the sacredness of the Haram months. And this was the last 
minor excursion that took place before the actual Battle of Badr. And this excursion that we just mentioned that took place in Nakhla and Rajab, this is really the major underlying reason, immediate reason, why the Battle of Badr takes place. Because the Quraysh accused the Prophet of violating the sacredness of the month of Rajab. Some of the Quraysh were killed. The Prophet returned the spoil, the returned the booty, returned the people that were taken prisoner. But the, the, the Quraishis that were killed, even though the Prophet was upset with that, this became the rallying cry of Abu Sufyan. And this will then lead to the first major battle of Islam, which will take place in Ramadan in the second year of the Hijrah, the Battle of Badr, which we'll talk about uh, next week, inshallah. So this was Rajab. What happens in Sha'ban of the second year of the Hijrah? On the 15th of Sha'ban, in the second year of the Hijrah, the Qibla was changed from Jerusalem to Mecca. So for 18 months in Medina, the Muslims faced Jerusalem. In Mecca, the Qibla was also Jerusalem, but the Prophet ﷺ could face Jerusalem and Mecca and the Kaaba at the same time because Jerusalem is essentially north of Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ could just pray and place the Kaaba between him and, and Jerusalem. So he kind of was like, you know, two Qiblas with one motion. But in Medina, because Medina is slightly northeast of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ couldn't do that. He had to give his back to Mecca and face Jerusalem. This is why Allah Ta'ala says, قَدْ نَرَى تَقَلُّبَ وَجِهِكَ فِي السَّمَاءِ We see you maybe concerned, we see you looking towards the heavens. We will guide you towards a qibla, a direction that you will like. And it was ordered on the 15th of Sha'ban, in the second year of the Hijrah, in the middle of the Zuhr or Asr prayer, two narrations, that the qibla changed from Jerusalem to Mecca. And in Islam we have three qiblas. The Qibla of prayer is Mecca, but the Qibla of dua is the heavens. So we make dua, you know, it's not that Allah is in the heavens, but this is the Qibla of the dua. And the third Qibla is the Qibla of the Muhibbeen, the, the Qibla of those who love is Sayyidina Muhammad So remember that, the three Qiblas of Islam, the, the Kaaba for prayer, the sky for dua, and the Prophet for those who love. May we be amongst them, inshallah. Questions? We said about Ashur. Okay, so in in our belief, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot be confined by any dimension. So Allah cannot be confined in a place or a space or in time. So Allah can't be above something or below something. Or Allah can't be over there and then he came over here. Because all of that would imply that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is some definable dimension. But Allah laysa kamithlihi shaykh, nothing is like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So even Allah's throne is something that is created. Allah created, but Allah didn't create the throne so he can sit on it. Because to sit on the throne would imply that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has some kind of dimension. 
So, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not in the sky, not in the heavens, because that would then imply that Allah is confined to a space. But nothing can confine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nothing can define Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because he is, he is the creator of all of the dimensions, and outside of all of the dimensions. So, that's why I, I highlighted that, that what, what do we do with the heavens? We say it's the qibla of the dua. Just like when we pray to Mecca, we're not praying to God, uh, towards God, because God is in the Kaaba. No, it's the, it's just, that's the direction that we pray in the prayer. And then the, the, the Qibla of the Dua is the heavens, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is beyond, uh, beyond space and time and all types of dimensions. You get that? That's important. Don't, don't become a Wahhabi on me. I'm, I'm trying to save everyone. Okay. Good. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we understand it the same way that the verse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sitting on the throne. You know? So the early Muslims, the Salaf, like the real Salaf, not the fake Salafis today, I mean like the real Salaf, they said, okay, we just believe in it because the way it's stated. We don't need to know what that means. The later the later Muslims are like, well, you know, somebody like you is gonna ask this question, so we have to have an answer for it. So they said, this means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends with his attributes, with his traits. So Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifested over the arsh, like with his mercy, with his, with his compassion, something like that. So what does it mean in the last third of the night that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends? Not that Allah is a, is a definable thing and he comes down, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends with these attributes to us for us to call onto him. So he is closer to us closer in that moment because most people are asleep. So it's a spiritual meaning. Not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala vacated his throne and then came down and then he's going to go back. You get it? I'm telling people went to jail over this stuff, believe it or not, in the past. Oh, that was one question. Allah Akbar. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. So what is this day in Judaism? No, but that day of fasting. No Jews here, come on. Huh? What's the day? No? Ah, what? Yom Kippur. Okay. Which is in what, what month? Tishri. Nobody knows anything about Judaism? Okay. So when the Prophet in the second year of the Hijrah, in, on, the, on Muharram, the 10th of Muharram, which is our timing, the Jews were fasting that day. So he said, why are you guys fasting this day? He said, well, this is you know, the day that God saved Moses, etc. We fast, etc., etc. 
So the Prophet said, this is the day that we're going to fast, the 10th of Muharram. Now, our calendar is an absolute lunar calendar. The Jewish calendar is not absolute lunar. They add days. <coughs> I don't know the details of it. We, we can ask our, our Jewish friends to explain it to us. But they add... What? Lana, now I'm going to start to worry about you. How do you know this? Are you recording this? I belong to the Shalom Shalom. Oh, okay. That's actually, I can vouch for you then. Okay. I'm just kidding. I've, I've, known, I've known Lana almost my entire life. So they add. And this, for us, is a major sin. It's called a nasi'ah. And Allah says in the Quran, and nasi is a type of disbelief that we add. And this is one of the secrets why the Prophet only made Hajj once. Because when the Prophet made Hajj at the end of his life, on the day of Arafah, when he gave his khutbah, he says, Now the calendar is right. Because the Arabs, the Jahili Arabs, also used to do the same thing. They didn't like this sacred month nonsense. They're like, This is, we want to kill each other and fight, and this is. Messing it, so we're going to take Rajab out of here, we're going to put it here, and then we'll add another month here, and we'll push Dhul Qa'da, and then we'll splice up Dhul Hijjah, and we'll do something with Muharram. So the calendar was all messed up. And one of the secrets that the Prophet only did that one Hajj is that at that time he said, Now the this is Dhul Hijjah. Now the calendar is right. So for us, it's the same day, uh, it's the same day every year, which is the 10th of Muharram. But vis-a-vis -vis the solar calendar, it goes back 11 days every year. So it's not usually, it's, ne it's almost never the same as the Jewish calendar, except once maybe every 40 or 50 years. No, he asked them, he said, why do you fast this day? This is from the hadith. And in the beginning it was fard, and then it became sunnah after the fard of the fast of Ramadan. But I'm saying your question brings up these other issues that's important to understand about the calendar. So on the 10th of Muharram, we fast, and somebody's got to make us the pudding, and then we have a good time, and then we talk about Sayyidina Hussein, and then we make reconciliation between the Sunnis and Shias, and Allah will be kind to us the rest of the year. It's a good day. Is there an addition that talks that if I offer keeping fast, I'm not sure if I live with Next year, I will keep two, two days. Yes. It's one of the narrations of the hadith. Is he said, if I live till the next year, I will add another day to be different than the Jews, to have something different. So the, the one sunnah is to fast the 10th. Another sunnah is to fast the 9th and the 10th, or the 10th and the 11th, or the 9th, the 10th, and the 11th. But if you're a softy like me, you'll just fast the, ninth, uh, the, the 10th. The first person to believe in Islam was Sayyidina Khadija. Yeah, 
I mean, the, the uh, women, because today is internet. You see the problem? I don't, I don't like these days because before we know it, every day is going to be some kind of day. And if you don't talk about what's happening that day, then people are going to. So I don't talk about anything because then I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I can't keep up. And then I'm a man. So then we, oh, you're a man, you're talking about women, and this is ghost, you're mansplaining and man complimenting and all of these things. So we don't have this problem because we have the Prophet and we have his Sunnah. And his Sunnah and his life has, is teaching us and has taught us that women were essential to the establishment of Islam, were essential to the establishment of Medina, were essential in all of the, these fights that will take place in Badr and Uhud and all of these things, was absolutely essential to the uh, infrastructure of Islam. The first person to believe in the Prophet was Sayyidah Khadija. And were it not for Sayyidah Khadija's belief and financial support, we wouldn't have Islam. So she was the rock, the spiritual rock of the Prophet in the darkest times of, of his life. Such that when she passed away, we commemorate that as the as the year of sorrow. I'm in Husn because he lost. And Sayyidah Aisha, she said, I was never jealous of any woman except for Sayyidah Khadija. And she never met her. Because everything with the Prophet Sayyidah Khadija, this, Sayyidah Khadija, oh, these people used to visit us at the time of Khadija. Oh, this reminds me of Sayyidah Khadija. Oh, this, oh, that. So the Prophet Sayyidah he said, uh, uh, the Prophet he said there are there are the things that have been made to me to, to love, not thalath. Thalath is not part of its common misquote mis of the hadith. The things that have been made uh, pleasing to me are beautiful scents, perfumes, women, and the ease of my eyes in the prayer. The best of you are those who are good to their women, and I am the best of you towards my women. And in the long hadith of uh, in Sahih al-Bukhari of uh, Umm Dar, the Prophet وسلم, he, he was with Sayyidah Aisha, and she said, I want to tell you a story. Uh, that took place in the Jahiliya. So he said, okay. And she told him the story of 10 women who, who got together and said, we're going to talk about, we, we promised, we sat together and we decided that we're going to talk to each other about our husbands, honestly. And the first one talks and her husband is like horrible. And each one is like, he's pitiful. And like, he's fat, he's ugly, he's this and that. And it keeps getting progressively better until Umadara, for which the hadith is named, her husband Abu Dara is like Mr. Perfect. He's so beautiful. He's so kind. You know, he I, I, people work for me in the house. I get to sleep in, and, and my even the servants are nice. The animal. And we have so much food. We have so much. She's just my Mr. Mr. Perfect. And the Prophet he said to her, "I am to you like Abu Dara is to Umm Dara." So this is the model of of uh, that the Prophet established for us of how we are to treat the women that are in our lives. So we don't need a day. I don't need, I don't need to tweet pictures about you know, women going like this to show that. <laughs> All I need to do is follow the sunnah of the Prophet but really follow it. To treat our women the way that Abu Dara treated Umm It's a huge hadith. It's, a very, it's called the hadith of Umm Dara. 
So I'm not mansplaining, okay? Please. Yes, we have all of that, but what's more important is that it's all it's all connected to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the key, the key is that we we hold him dear in our hearts so that we can follow him. If we follow him, then all of these things will happen. We don't need a day to remember this or a day to remember because it will be natural. The Prophet Sallallahu wasn't like this once a year. He was like this all the time. He was in the service of his family. What his family did in the house, he did. Where the hands of the women were in the house, so were his hands. They cooked, he cooked, he, they cleaned, he cleaned, they did this, he, that's what it means. He was, his hands were working in the hands of the, of the house. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he is the best of creation. There is nothing in the created universe, even the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nothing is created that is better than Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Yeah. Not that I know of. But that was also normal because they were, they were, they were, health was very different for them than it is for us. If the Prophet ever got sick, other than the sickness towards the end of his life. Is there a prophet trained that three times, each time he made I don't remember. Sorry, Dr. Jesus. No, I also wanted to, Islam has uplifted the woman, the, the status in Islam. In Surah Nisa, we say, وَتَكُلَّهَ الَّذِي تَقَى أَلُونَ بِالْأَرْحَامِ And um, have reverence for me, Allah Ta'ala says, and have reverence for the womb. It's a plural, and one is womb of the mother. Have respect for her, and other is because it's plural, womb of the wife who gives children by whom we develop relations. So for women, Allah says, have reverence for me because I'm her creator, and have reverence for womb, mother and wife from whom you create. Really, because if there was no womb after wife, mm. there would be no creation. That's right. So Islam has given a greater status to women. Islam has, but the Muslims haven't. Islam has given that status to, to women, but Muslims have not. The Muslim man, what does he say? He says the woman only goes out three times. Once from her mother's uh, you know, womb, once from her father's house to her husband's house, and the third time from her husband's house to the grave. So when you have that mentality, and you, people grow up like that, that's, you know, that's not what the, the Prophet Sallam didn't say that.
course, all of the Ahlul Bayt, they go back to Quraysh. So are they the Abbasids and the Abbasids were uh, from Ben Abbas, from the uh, from the Ahlul Bayt, the the, the Khalifas. The Umayyads were also from uh, Ben Umayyah was also from Quraysh, but not from Ahlul Bayt. Uh, and um, and uh, the, the, even till today, the Zamzam, there are families who historically would give Zamzam to the pilgrims. My family, my mother's family, is from the Zamzam family. And these families, many of them, they trace their lineage back either to Al Zubayr ibn Awam or to Ben Abdul or to Al Abbas. And these are people who are Ahlul Bayt. Sometimes here, If they can trace their family, yes, the, the king of, of Jordan, the Hashemite kingdom of the Benu Hashem, the king of Morocco, from Ahlul Bayt, from Idris, the Adanisa. So, yeah, all, these people all trace their, they can trace their, their lineage back. They are Ahlul Bayt. So, I mean, there's, you know, there are millions of these people. Even in the Hajjaj, there are. Yeah. The Qibla of the Salah is, is the Mecca. The Qibla of Dua is the heavens. So when we make Dua, we go like this. And the Qibla of love is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Anybody else? Surah Al-Kahf, not everything is as it seems. Not everything is as it seems. So the, the, the young people, they were uh, the children of the ruling class. So they were, you know, the establishment. And they didn't want to participate in the, uh, the polytheistic practices of their parents of the ruling class. So they left. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected them. So that's not what you would expect. You wouldn't expect those type of people to leave that comfort, to leave that uh, situation and flee. Nor would you expect that somebody would sleep for you know, 300, 400 years. And that cave still exists. It's, it's outside of Amman in Jordan. I've been, I've been in it before. I've been there twice. And then... What's after that? Then the guy, the, the, the guy with the with the garden. You know, no one's gonna take this away from me. <laughs> Allah took it away from him. And the person that didn't have a lot ended up becoming better off than the person that had a lot and it was taken away. And then of course the famous story of Musa and Khadr is that not everything that Moses saw was really as it, he didn't mean to damage the boat and he didn't kill an innocent person and he didn't you know build the wall uh, foolishly but there was a story behind that and if you want to know 
uh, if you want to have the right path through life, you need to have someone to guide you. So even though Musa is, is Musa there was somebody who Allah gave something else that Moses didn't have. So that's the point of also that story, is that you need somebody to guide you. You need a teacher, you need a sheikh, you need somebody to, to show you the way so you don't trip and fall. I mean, that's very simple, but I mean, it's obviously more meaningless. But. Friday. Starting from Maghrib on Thursday till right before Maghrib on Friday. The Islamic day starts in Maghrib. Is this seven people? Uh, no. Uh. No, I just said two recently. So it is like showing eight grades, but the guide was saying there were seven grades, seven people, and a dog. Yeah. Now the verse escapes me, but I, but uh, he, you probably saw the same guy, but he, he counts them for you. Yeah, he yeah. did. That, but I, I was telling him, I said that if four is one side, the same thing, this other there side. There is one in the middle. He said one is yeah, one in the middle. Nobody else? Well, the calf is the place of safety. So the 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 the, the young people of, of the beginning of Surah Al-Kaf, for whom the story is named, they had to flee harmship and they found safety, or they found enlightenment. And the cave is where where the Prophet receives the revelations from. And this is the idea of the khalwa. This is the idea of seclusion. Not that you have to physically be secluded. Sometimes you need to physically, you know, do something intense to wake up. But the idea is we want to find that cave that's within us, the seclusion that's within us. And that's what the Sufis call al-khalwa fil-jalwa, that your seclusion is amongst people. So, and this is how the Prophet ﷺ was. So even though he was amongst people, his heart was with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the idea, that we want to have that, our personal place of safety. But, you know, sometimes you can get it by yourself, but most of the times you need somebody to show you how to be like that. Because this dunya has a lot of nonsense. There's a lot of ignorant people. Like all of these Muslims that think that, uh, that if we, you know, go to elected office, somehow all of our problems are going to go away. This is, this is ignorance. And this is what the Prophet ﷺ told us. He told us, you will follow the way of the Jews and the Christians. So rather than using our resources to better the community and to raise our children, uh, we want to put them, you know, one or two people in the lion's den. They're going to get eaten up and the bones will be spit out. But if you, if you, uh, you, you need somebody uh, outside of that system to tell you that. Because now if you go online, everything is hashtag, I stand with so-and-so, I stand with so-and-so. And look, you know, we, we, we pray for the success of all of our brothers and sisters. I'm not speaking against anyone specifically. But I'm sorry, that's not the way that our, our predicament is going to get better. This is not the way of the Sunnah of the Prophet So you need sometimes that insulation. 
You need that cave, that safe spot where you don't lose out to the, so you're just blowing in the wind. You know, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. I mean, if you blow in the wind, then you're going you're gonna to go. I mean, it's a nice tune and everything. I love Bob Dylan just like anyone else, but no. <laughs> the Prophet, the Allah says that, you know, the tree, its roots are firm. So our roots need to be firm on the Kitab and the Sunnah. And that's what we're trying to do. And if, we're, if our roots are firm, we won't be blowing in the wind. The, the Prophet said, don't be uh, Iman. If the people do this, I'll do this. If the people do that, I'll do that. The Prophet said, don't be like that. The Prophet didn't like frivolous things. He was a serious person, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So to, to have that, you need to, you know, sometimes you just be shaken and be like, you know, wake up, wake up. So the cave is where we want to be in the metaphorical sense. So even though we're around all of this nonsense, we're not, uh, I remember after the election, man, people, people were acting like it was Yom Al-Qiyamah. I was like, do you really think that anything is going to change? No, I mean, seriously, did anything change? I mean, yeah, there are policy issues, but like our day-to-day -day life, has it changed? We have the same issues tomorrow that we have today that we had yesterday. So we want to focus, those things are important, but they're not going to be better unless we as a community, you know, are, are better with our Islam. And our Islam is connected with the Kitab and the Sunnah, and also connected with the here and the now, which is what we're trying to establish. So that's what the cave is about, is how to be in that safe spot and not be blowing in the wind. Farah has said it. No. What? Yeah, it's a sunnah to read Kahf every Friday. The first ten verses of Surah Al-Kahf protect you against the Dajjal. And the last three verses of Surah Al-Kahf you recite before you sleep so you can wake up for Fajr. This is from the Mujarrabat, from the things that are tried. So if you have trouble waking up for Fajr, make sure you have wudu before you sleep and recite the last three verses of Surah Al-Kahf. Now somebody will go, where's your Dalil? He asked for 8.30, brother Nasir. No? Brother Nasir, holy till 8.30. 8.30? We're Sisters of Mruda. I, I answer only to Sisters of Mruda. If Sisters of Mruda says 8.30, 8.30. There you go. Is that Sisters of Mruda speaking? Yeah. Uh, she's busy? I'm telling you, Sisters of Mruda goes like this. So there are things in Islam called al-mujarrabah, things that are tried. Tried and tested. That the ulama tried in the past and it worked. So one of the things that they taught us that if you recite the last three verses of Surah Al-Kahf before you sleep, you can you will wake up or it's an aid to help you wake up. So there's no dalil, there's no like hadith that says that, as far as I know. Now. See, okay, the she Lana is the dalil. Lana is the dalil. Right. There you go. So you should go to sleep with wudu and read the last three verses of Surah Al-Kahf and inshallah you'll wake up for a fetish.
Unless you don't want to wake up for judgment, that's another problem altogether. <laughs> that I can't help you with that. Anybody else? Marshall, I was so, so silent today. Do you have a question? This little group right there? Yes. I can, I can sense it. The only stupid question is the one that wasn't asked. So said my sixth grade teacher. How do we know what? So the things that will happen towards the end of time, in theology, they're called things that we hear. Meaning that the Prophet informed us, we heard them from the Prophet and we believe in them because that's what he told us. So we take it on faith. That's why it's a faith, not a science. So the things of the Dajjal and the Mahdi and Isa salam coming back, some of these things have allusions to them in the Quran, but most of them come from the hadith of the Prophet So in the hadith about the Dajjal, the Prophet told us that the first 10 verses of Surah Al-Kahf is like a protection if we live during the time of the Dajjal. And one of the traits of the Dajjal is that he has one eye, another trait is that it's written between his eyes, kafir, you know, things like that. Allah Alam, they could be literal, they could be, they could mean something, you know, there could be an allusion to something else, but we believe that there will be a, a figure like the Dajjal. Uh, sorry, there will be a figure that we call the Dajjal. But what's important are the signs. The signs of uh, switching good and bad and tricking people into good and bad. The ability to control the weather. Um, one eye, you know, Sheikh Hamza calls the minions the Dajjal, because they have one eye, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't know, th these things could be literal or could not be literal, but, but there's the Dajjal, there's the Mahdi, there's the return of Isa, alayhi salam, etc., etc., etc. We believe in them because the Prophet informs us. And there are some people that wrote about these things, like even Kathir, he has a book, and I think it's in English, about the signs of uh, the final hour, the signs of the end of time, etc. There are minor signs and major signs. Welcome. Um, Welcome, sir. One minute, uh, Qiyamul Layl is the best of the Sunnah. Okay. Um, the question is, do, do we have uh, um, Make sure the next time you, you get together that that sister does not come and you continue doing that. Because if you continue doing that, you will enter into paradise. Because the Prophet said, pray at night when people are asleep, say, spread the salam, you will enter into paradise.
You had something else? You can shred them. Yeah. And then recycle them. I've heard so many rumors. You can bury them. You can put them in the river or something. Shred them. And then yeah. I would shred them and then recycle them. So if you have like a little paper shredder that you can easily access, you can just run it through the shredder and then put it in the in the recycle. One of the early uh, saints, I think it was um, Asir al-Saqafi, one of the early Baghdadi saints, he found uh, in the, uh, he was walking and he found a paper that had the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on it. So he felt so and he wasn't particularly a pious person at this point. He felt so ashamed when he saw that, that he took it and he cleaned it and he perfumed it and he put it on his wall. So he heard, uh, you know, he heard a voice that said, as you have perfumed and beautified our name, so we will perfume and beautify your name. And this was his path of Tawbah. So we have as a, as a culture, we have respect for things that are holy. So the fact that, you know, you have this like paper that comes from the mosque and it says Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, you don't know what to do with it. The fact that you have this magazine that has a picture of the dome of the Prophet mosque, you don't know. This is a good sign. These are good, this is a sign that our, our heart is alive. Um, but at the same time, we can't keep every single piece of paper. Yeah, you have a box full of them. So, so we run it through the shredder, inshallah, uh, and you can, you can recycle it. The Quran. Well, that's not really. That's technically not the Quran. So, if you if you needed to dispose of them, there'd probably be a way to recycle them. That would be fine. Um, if you have a a Quran Quran that's like damaged or something like that. Uh, there are some people that collect them and they take care of them. If, if you can't, then you can that you can burn. So burning that or running the pages through the shredder, uh, same thing. Because sometimes the Quran is damaged or it's missing pages or the pages have fallen out, etc. I mean, I've seen that. Yeah, that's another way. I guess you could you could do that, but that might not be for people here. Might not be easy. about burying it or burying the paper. Because the, again, that's what I was saying, it's out of our our culture of, of respect. You know, it's not like any other book. We don't put a book on top of it, you know, we don't throw it across the room. When we hold it, we kiss it. Out of respect for what this is, this is the you know eternal, uncreated word of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So it's a sign of respect. So these things that come from within, these are these are healthy signs of our faith. It's not. 
a practice to say, oh, is it sunnah, is it not sunnah, is it dalil, is it not dalil? It's not like that. It's something that comes out of our love and our, our absolute respect for that which is holy. And that's important because there are things that are holy and there are things that are not holy. Like the mosque is not like the mall. You know, so when you come into the mosque, there's an etiquette to the mosque. You take off your shoes, you pray two rakahs, you know, you keep the mosque clean. Uh, you know, we don't bring food necessarily into the mosque usually, unless it's like we're fasting or something like that. So those are all signs of our respect for things that are holy. These are these are good things. In other cultures like Hindus and all the even normal books and all the they revered them so much that if somebody let's say in India if you take even a book and just say keep it under your feet, somebody may beat you with why did you do that? Like forget about the holy book, even the normal any random book if you keep to yeah, but those, but those things, it's important to remind ourselves that those things are also dictated by culture. So, like Bedouins in like North Africa, like when I went to Mauritania, all of the books were on the floor. But that wasn't out of, but they were organized. You know, but there's no, there's no like infrastructure the way we have with like bookshelves. So, so that the mushaf is on the top of the, all of the books are on the floor. That, that was their way of respect. So those things are also dictated by culture. And some Muslims, they get a little too zealous. You know? Like somebody's in the mosque and they're praying and like the verse of the sajda comes. So like they put the mushaf down and they make sajda and then like somebody yells at them, you know. You know, sometimes, you know, like in Mecca or you know, this massive mosque with like a million people, you know, what are you supposed to do? So sometimes we, we go too far both ways. We say it's haram or we, you know, we beat people for not being too respectful. So, you know, we should be in, in the middle. Because there is a culture, there's a culture to it. I mean, the person that put the mushaf on the on the rug next to them to make the sajda, they didn't do that out of disrespect. They just didn't know what to do with the, with the, with the mushaf. What about the non-believers actually holding the translator the, the translated version is not the Qur'an. The only thing that's the Qur'an is that, that is the Fatiha to the Nas in Arabic. Even if there was commentary in that, in Arabic, that's not called the Qur'an. So the Qur'an is a specific, has a specific definition. Um, even the, the English translation that has the entire Arabic in it, but has all of the English around it, that's not called the Qur'an. So those rules don't apply to that. Those rules only apply to the Qur'an, which is from Surah Al-Fatiha to Surah Al-Nas in the Arabic language, from cover to cover. So we see that they translate the words of books. You don't have to take over? No. Just like you wouldn't have to have wudu if you read the Qur'an from your phone. Or your like iPad or something like that, because that's not the Qur'an. Each juz by itself, that's not the Qur'an. And that's why they have it like that. Yeah, I know everyone thinks they have it because of like when people die, but they also there's also another use for it, which is, you know, you can take that and you can read it. Uh, for those that follow the opinion that you should have only touched the Quran when you have your wudu. So that's that's important to remember. Mm. Yeah. So with fiqh again, remember fiqh is a precise science, and things have to be precise. So what is the Quran? Has a certain definition. 
So everything that's not that definition is not the Quran. So like if you wore like a medallion that had like the Fatiha or like Ayat al-Kursi or something like that, that's not the Quran. You don't have to have wudu to recite the Quran. The, the issue in fiqh is you have to have wudu to touch the mushaf. So all of the schools say you have to have wudu to, to touch the mushaf, except uh, sisters of Ruda, they said that you said. Okay, just I'll finish this question. All of the madhab say you have to have wudu to touch the mushaf, except Ibn Hazm. From the Zahiri school, he said you don't have to have wudu to touch the mushaf. Yeah. So for students or people that are learning, memorizing, reviewing the Qur'an, that opinion might be more usable because we don't want to follow a fiqh opinion that prevents us from having a relationship with the Qur'an. Which is a separate issue from uh, women during their cycle or uh, janaba, in which everyone universally agrees you can't touch the Qur'an. Allah